So Psalm 91, starting at verse 1. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with, he, I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Our Father... Help us to know you better through this psalm so that each of us would be able to personally respond and trust in you and make you our refuge and shelter. Amen. This current season has reminded us um, that we are not as strong as we seemed. Of course, there's been many good things. We've discovered board games. Uh, You may have rediscovered your neighbours who you were too busy to see beforehand. And maybe you've slowed down, which is good. However, it has left us shaken, hasn't it? The things that we've been relying on as the bedrocks of our security in one way have been stripped from us. Job security, income, um, retirement savings, uh, promises of good health. We've been shaken and we've realised that we are not as strong as we thought we were even a month ago. This is why this psalm is such a timely word from God to us. The whole message of the psalm is really summed up in the first uh, verses. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And then there's a personal response in verse 2. What's this talking about? If you remember back to the kids' talk, you'll remember seeing that picture of those baby chicks, those ostrich chicks, sheltering in the shadow of their parents' wings uh, so that they're protected from the hot African sun. That's kind of the image that's used here. He who dwells, that is, lives in the shelter of God. You come to God, like that big ostrich, (laughs) um, because you know that he is the safest one, the safest place to come to. If you do that, you will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And then, of course, um, there's a personal response. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, he is my fortress in whom I trust. Now, this uh, promise is a wonderful promise. You don't need to be religious. You don't need to have been born in a religious family or have religious pedigree. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. You might be uh, checking in with us. Hello. Um, 
and you've never really been to church before, here is a promise for you. Now, it's not a promise for you to just say, oh, I believe God exists. Um, it's a calling for a personal response to make the Lord your shelter, to make him uh, your refuge. <clears throat> now, also, it's not talking about any God. Uh, it's not saying, uh, well, as long as we believe in a God of our imagination or a God of our own understanding. No, no, no. The God whom they're speaking about in this psalm is very specific. Four um, phrases are used to describe God here, and it's the God of the Bible. So first of all, the Most High. Uh, this is, I love this, this is saying of all the spiritual beings that are around there in heaven and on earth, under the earth, anything angelic, demonic, God is the Most High. And there's massive assurance in that, isn't there? There's no one stronger than him. Second uh, phrase is the Almighty. In Hebrew, this is Shaddai. This is the um, term by which God revealed himself to, in the Old Testament to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Shaddai, the Almighty, is the one who makes promises, promises which have the whole nations of the world in view in the end, um, but a God who enters into relationship with people, which you do when you make a promise, and the God, therefore, who is faithful because he delivers on promises. That's who the Almighty is. Third term is the Lord. Uh, verse 2, I will say of the Lord. This is the name of God in the Old Testament. It's hard to pronounce. Um, it has no consonants. It's something like Yahweh, <laughs> which means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. This is the name uh, through which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. God hadn't revealed himself uh, by this name to anyone before, even though the narrator of Genesis uh, does refer to him by that name, but not in speech, not in speech in the, in the story. So in Exodus chapter 6, Moses is there at the burning, uh, sorry, afterwards, <laughs> but uh, God says to Moses, I am the Lord, I appeared to, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. So here's something new. God's telling us more about himself. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. That is my name. What does that mean? It means that God's not defined in reference to anyone. He's not answerable, accountable to anyone. It doesn't mean he's a megalomaniac and an awful God, okay, uh, because he's the God who makes promises. He, he, he's concerned for people. He enters into relationship with us. He's faithful. He delivers. We know that. But he's not answerable to anyone. There's no one higher than him. He is the Lord. And finally, fourth term, he is my God in whom I trust. That is, he's personal. He's, uh, people are able to make him their God. Uh, he enters into personal relationship with people. That is the God who the psalm says, if you make him your shelter, your refuge, then he will be for that. He will be your refuge and your fortress. It's a wonderful, wonderful psalm. Now, uh, what do we have to do? We have to physically say, well, personally say, I will say of the Lord, verse 2, he is my refuge and my fortress. That is, we're not just um, being people who say, I'm not a materialist, I'm a spiritual person because I think there's something else out there. No, no, no. It's more than that. It's a personal expression of trust. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. You're putting your trust in him. You're coming to him saying, I need you. And I'm making you, I'm depending upon you, I'm making you my refuge and my fortress 
because without you, I'm lost. And it's coming to God, realising he is for you what you cannot be for yourself. He's your refuge, your fortress. Now, in that's verses 1 and 2, where we have the Lord as my refuge. In verses 3 to 13, it's the Lord, your refuge. If we wanted to unpack the great promises in verses 1 and 2, verses 3 to 13 do it. And it says, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare. Uh, I wondered what a fowler was. A fowler is one who catches fowl, that is, birds that you eat. Um, a fowler's snare is a trap that someone who's hunting birds would set. Imagine yourself as a little bird, an emu chick. He will save you from the fowler's snare. But also from bit deadly pestilence. Isn't that a timely sort of verse for now? He will cover you with his feathers. What a beautiful image. And under his wings you will find refuge. There you are, helpless. You will be protected. He has you. He will guard you. He will keep you. What does that mean? His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. The rampart, of course, is um, uh, some sort of defence around a, a town, maybe a wall or, or a group of soldiers. He will defend you from attack. You will not fear the terror of the day of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. The terror of the night. That's almost um, demonic, isn't it? The, you know, the great things that you might be frightened of at night. Nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. It's a personal salvation. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. So imagine you're a soldier in battle. People are dropping left and right, left and right, but you somehow come through unscathed. It will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. It won't, it won't touch you. You see, verse 9, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, and again, it's that personal, personal need to, to make the Lord your refuge. If you say that, if you make the most high your dwelling, here's the staggering promise, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. And then what's talked about is supernatural deliverance. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not fight, strike your foot against the stone. And then even in a complete reverse of the order of creation where bigger things, natural things threaten us, even animals, lions, cobras, you will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Um, this is a staggering, staggering promise of deliverance if you come through, come, uh, if it's true. Now, if it's true, you would have to say the staggering nature of this means that anyone, well, everyone must come to the Lord. <laughs> you know, everyone in the whole world must turn and make uh, God their refuge because it's so wonderful, isn't it? We all know that there are things bigger than us out there that can destroy us. But here is a great promise. The staggering nature of it does make us wonder, who's this really talking about? Because we can think, hang on, we've known people who've made the Lord their refuge, but they have lost their lives. Christians who've died in car accidents or in earthquakes or in famines or in um, persecution or just died of, of, of early age disease um, or just people who've had knock after knock after knock against them. How has the Lord been their refuge then? Who is this really about? Well, 
I think it's about a lot of people, but the one person, of course, who it's certainly about is Christ. How do we know that? Because these verses, Psalm 19, Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, are quoted in reference to Jesus. And these um, verses are quoted by a very unlikely source. Do you know? Flick forward in your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, and we come to the moment of Jesus' great temptation. The one who quotes these in reference of Jesus is none other than Satan himself. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down because it is written. And then Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12 in reference to Jesus. He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, in one way, Satan was right. Psalm 91 is about Jesus. But the great uh, deception of Satan here is that he wants Jesus to undo the premise of the psalm. The premise of the psalm is that God is absolutely trustworthy. He can be your refuge and fortress and he won't let you down. Satan wanted to get Jesus to question that and to doubt it and then to sort of test God to see whether the the promises of the psalm held true. Jesus knows he's not going to play that game. He trusts in God and he knows his father is eminently trustworthy. So he says it's not. It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he doesn't play Satan's game. But what Matthew 4 tells us is that this psalm is most certainly about Jesus himself. Why else do we know it's about Jesus? Well, in Psalm 91, verses 13, uh, it says, you will, not, you will tread on the lion and the cobra, the you will trample the great lion and the serpent. This is describing Jesus' action in regards to Satan. Satan in the Bible is regarded as a, or depicted as a lion and a serpent. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, your enemy, enemy the lion prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then, of course, in Genesis 3, we have, um, uh, we have Satan depicted as a serpent. But then the promise in Genesis 3 also that one born of woman, Eve, uh, Eve's son, would crush the serpent's head. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does. This psalm is most certainly about Jesus. He withstands the pressure of Satan and he resists him. So if it's about Jesus, now let's ask the question, is Psalm 91 only about Jesus? And the answer is no. How do we know that? Because when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he didn't just stand as himself. He stood identifying with sinners like you and me. Uh, What happens just before he's tested? He's baptised. He, of course, didn't need to be baptised because he was a sinner. He was sinless. So why was he baptised? He was baptised to identify with sinners like you, like me, like the Israelites. The Israelites, in their story, were tested and tempted in the desert for 40 years after they were baptised going through the Red Sea. Jesus is tested and tempted in the desert for 40 days after he is baptised. In other words, what he's going through in the desert, he's going, he's representing sinners like you and like me. The beauty of what Jesus does is that having succeeded where we have failed, That means that his success, if you like, his triumph over Satan, his crushing of Satan, cannot be divorced from his identification with us. 
uh, I'm sounding complicated. What do I mean? I mean that Jesus carries us through. Because he resists temptation in the wilderness, that means being sinless. When he dies on the cross, he is able to die for us in our place. He doesn't deserve punishment, but he takes it for us, purchasing us forgiveness and eternal life, which he proves when he rises again from the dead on Easter Sunday. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. Who is Psalm 91 about? Yes, it's about Jesus Christ, but it's also about us in Jesus Christ. When we think about the fears uh, that we have, the biggest fear surely must be the fear that we are going to be rejected by God on the day of judgment. Because of the victory that Jesus won over Satan, who wants to condemn us, he purchases us forgiveness, eternal life. We can come to him as our refuge. We are sheltered under his wings, which he stretched out for us on the cross. We can come under what he has done for us and the victory he has won. And we can be forgiven and find refuge and shelter. The psalm is actually about all people who are in Christ. Now, what does this mean for us? Um, the psalm talks about coming to God and he will... He will be your shelter. Does this mean that nothing bad will ever happen to people who come to God and trust in him? No, it doesn't. In fact, in the psalm itself, uh, God doesn't promise that. He says, I will be with you in trouble. Arrows may come, but I will shelter you. In other words, you won't avoid uh, the conflict. You won't avoid trial. You won't avoid difficulty. But I will be with you and I will bring you through. Um, what does this mean about... Um, Christians with their normal everyday life, the things that we fear. Sure, God's dealing with our eternal life, but what about the things that threaten our physical life? Well, this psalm is a call for us to trust in him as well, for our daily needs. The wonderful thing about God is that he's responsive and answers our needs. I reckon when we'll get to heaven, we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to see how God has preserved our life and answered our needs um, many, many times. Someone with COVID-19 was heading our way, but we turned away at the last moment, or they did. Uh, a tree that was falling just missed us. This happened to our family. Um, a near miss in a car was narrowly avoided. God preserves your life. And maybe you can think about the times when, yes, God almost supernaturally protected you and preserved your life. He is concerned about what happens to you. Does that mean that he will always look after us? Well, all of us are going to die of something. Um, let me illustrate. Um, last week, if you were looking in, uh, you would have heard me give the illustration of someone who, in a previous church uh, of mine, um, had incurable blood disease, and we prayed for that person that the Lord would extend his life by 15 years. And... The answer of what happened, I didn't give that last week, is that God miraculously saved that person's life. Miraculously so. Totally cured. Contrast that answer to prayer with another one, which was a negative answer. Anne Amos is someone that some of you may be able to remember if you were here at Trinity Church Aldgate some years ago. At the time she was attending 
at our church. She was a young mum, married, three kids. She was a law lecturer at Adelaide Uni. She sometimes with her family would come to the church in the city where I was, so I had a connection as well. And uh, Anne developed um, uh, seizures and she went for scans and it was found that she had multiple tumours across her frontal lobe. She went through all the agony of treatment and operations, um, but eventually she lost her life. Did the Lord fail in his promise to be a refuge and a shelter for Anne? No, he didn't. Because I went to her funeral with Mark Mitchell, who's uh, emceeing today. And we went there and we can say, we heard from family members, her husband, people after person after person who said, God preserved her soul. He saved her soul. She died in good shape, not bitter, but actually joyful, trusting in the Lord. I can testify because I saw Chris, her husband, last last year that God's done the same for his family. When I met with Chris and his children, they were all still trusting in God, joyful. Yes, they've been through grief, but they were joyful. Why does God choose to save one person and not another? Well, we don't know the answer to that, but sometimes we give an insight. In 1956, five young American missionaries went to Ecuador to make contact with the Alka tribe, which was an unreached people group. They never had contact with anyone from Western civilization. Uh, it was not long after making contact that, of course, one of those men, Jim Elliott, very famously, lost his life. He was speared through. Now, here is someone of whom you'd say he trusted in the Lord, but the Lord failed. Would you say that? Cut off in the prime of his life. Well, no, because he died well. Uh, his diaries were discovered. And just before he died, he wrote these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, his life, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life. He died well. Now, you might say, hang on, yeah, but what about his physical life? He trusted in the Lord. The Lord wasn't his refuge. No, no. Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, when she wrote his memoirs, she entitled the memoirs In the Shadow of the Almighty, a verse straight from Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Why did God decide to cut off Jim Elliot's life in the prime of his life? Why didn't he have decades of fruitful ministry after that? In 2006, um, uh, what's, his, what's his name? Reg Piper, who used to be the minister, senior pastor of Trinity Churchill, uh, Adelaide, and then at that time was the Bishop of Wollongong. He went to a worldwide conference of missionaries. And at that missionary conference, 50 years after Jim Elliot had lost his life, there was a guest appearance. The guest was the very Indian tribesman who had killed Jim Elliot. And he stood up at this worldwide missionary conference and he gave his testimony how because of Jim and his sacrifice and his witness, how impactful that was, the, the tribesmen realised they actually needed to hear about Jesus and they became Christians. This man, other families, their children, their grandchildren. Isn't that wonderful? It got better. The MC who was standing there with the orca tribesmen after the tribesmen had spoken, he said to this uh, 
conference centre, which was full of thousands of missionaries, he said, put up your hand if the reason why you are now on the mission field today can be directly attributed to the sacrifice of Jim Elliott and the story of his sacrifice 50 years ago. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hands went up across the auditorium. God used that. God used that. We often don't know why God will extract someone early, why God puts us through suffering. However, he's with us in it. And he often answers our prayers. And he is uh, someone who we can trust in to be our shelter and our refuge. He cares for us deeply. This psalm is a call for each of us to personally come to God and to put our trust in him because we know that there are things bigger than us that threaten our existence, um, none bigger than, of course, uh, Satan and his attempt to accuse us and uh, the threat of God's wrath. Jesus, of course, is concerned about our lives. God is responsive to our personal prayers and needs. And he is the one who is providing security and shelter against the biggest threat that would come on us on the last day. He's the one that each of us must decide, yes, I will make the Lord my shelter. He will be my refuge. He will be the one in whom I dwell. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are trustworthy. You're the Lord. And today, each of us, We're just taking a moment to say, yes, I trust in you. I will dwell in your shelter. I will make you a refuge. And of course, we rest in your shadow. We praise you for your care for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.